This show is brought to you by earpeeler.com. Welcome one and all to episode 123 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and we are continuing our classic albums series September September to remember, man. Uh, yeah, so we're continuing the whole classic albums column, the sixth year anniversary celebration here on the Mars Attacks podcast. And this time around, the episode focuses on Overkill's Taking Over. Why Taking Over? Well, sort of a difficult choice with Overkill. You know, like so many other bands, there's one pivotal album or one big seller, like the Years of Decay were for the band. And people seem to forget that, holy shit, you know, Songs like Power Surge and Wrecking Crew and Deny the Cross and In Union We Stand, uh, tracks that have been in and out of their live show and some have been permanently part of their live show since this album first came out uh, back during the 80s. And that's why I selected this specific album uh, I was lucky enough to see them a few years ago playing a lot of these tracks, and it was just cool, you know, um, seeing that a band has been around 35 years uh, and with no signs of stopping, seeing them be able to put on such a great show and seeing people just so, you know, just so, like, intertwined with them. Uh, while they're on stage is just amazing. Uh, Very few bands that I've seen that have been quote-unquote big bands have generated the same type of interest. At least that's the impression that I've, you know, received from being at various shows, at least where I am, anyway. Uh, What's interesting about this particular episode is that you're going to hear comments from Blitz from Overkill, You're going to hear comments from Bobby Gustafson, their original guitarist. They're the original guitarist that most of us know on album. Obviously, Dan Spitz, formerly of Anthrax, was in the band before him, and a few other people were as well. But, I mean, none of them made it onto onto an actual album. So, uh, I do have up on the website on MarsAttacksRadio.com, for those of you that are checking this out for the first time, we do have a Q&A with a guitarist that came after uh, after Bobby, and his name is Joe uh, Komu, and I hope I am pronouncing that right. <laughs> he is known as a guitarist in Overkill, known as being the lead singer of Annihilator as well, and Dusk Machine, and a bunch of other projects. So there's that Q&A up there. And there's also a Q&A with founding member Rat Skates, who founded the band with Dee Dee Verney, pretty much, uh, if you look at the history of the, of the band. And shortly after taking over, uh, Rat did leave the band for various reasons. And recently I caught an interview with... Blitz, where he talked about the documentary that Rat put out not that long ago. You can actually order it for free online from Rat's site. I actually have a link to that uh, right in the the show notes, right in the Q&A, actually. Uh, there's, there's a link where you can pick the movie up. And it was interesting because... You know, there's there's obviously going to be two sides to this story. Um, there's going to be obviously, uh, well, actually, not only two sides, but there's going to be Blitz's side and DD's side, and then in this case, there's going to be uh, Rat's side and also Bobby Gustafson's side. There's you're you're going to hear both of them. Well, you're going to be able to read Rat's comments. You're going to be able to see. Uh, Bobby Gustafson's comments regarding, you know, how things are between them and um, and, and the other members of the band that were in the band while 
they were in Overkill, who were Dee Dee Verney and and Bobby Blitz Ellsworth. So um, everyone's entitled to their opinion. This is similar to what I mentioned during the last episode, which was based on Anthrax's Sound of White Noise. I obviously wasn't there. Um, I'm, in this case, in the middle, you know, because I'm getting these great stories from everyone that's decided to comment on this specific episode. And, you know, I don't want to cut anyone off because in the end, um, you know, it's their story, it's their perspective, it's their side of things as to what transpired. Um, I, I honestly can't sit here and say, well, this person did this, this person did that, the other thing, because I wasn't there. Uh, so I have to take everything that each one of these people say as being part of the truth. Obviously, um, Rat and both Bobby Gustafson have issues with DD and Blitz, and and that's you can read it or you can hear them both say it. Uh, I will say for those that don't know about what's happened since, uh, Bobby does have a band called Satan's Taint. And if you want to look that up, it doesn't actually have um, an apostrophe in the name. So I was looking for it and I couldn't find it anywhere. And that's actually why I couldn't find it because I was using the the apostrophe. And uh, Rat actually has a company that does all types of different movies and documentaries. Uh, There's a movie called Born in the Basement where he talks about how Overkill got together. Like I mentioned before, you can get that for free on his site. And, you know, it was interesting during this interview with Blitz, he pretty much says, the one that I just mentioned that I recently heard from him, he does say that, you know... um, that this documentary has Rat's side of things and that he has no issue with him telling his side of what took place. So um, I thought that that was sort of cool, you know, because a lot of people will um, basically, you know, just say, oh, well, you're wrong. He's right. There's this, there's that. And again, that's up to them to decide. Ultimately, it affects them directly and me as a listener basically as a fan, as a host of, of this podcast. You know, I'm just trying to promote the music and I'm just trying to get people hooked on, in this case, Taking Over. Or maybe if you haven't listened to Taking Over in a while, you know, get you to revisit the album and hopefully, you know, it turns some people on to going out and purchasing the album. Uh, at the bottom of the show notes, we do also have... A Spotify playlist, so if you want to listen to the album before picking it up, go ahead and do so. Uh, I've mentioned this on several occasions where, you know, although I'm not a huge fan of streaming music, I do see how some people prefer it. I would just prefer to have, you know, a physical, even though it's not physical, but I prefer to have a an MP3 on my end because, unfortunately, the internet here once you leave your house, and even where I live, the internet sucks. <laughs> so um been battling that for for about two weeks now where constant outages with my coverage and and basically, you know, uh putting a wrench in to updating both MarsAttacks.com and, and earpeeler.com. So um but anyway, yeah, so I prefer to have a, a file or a CD or a vinyl because when I don't have internet, you know, I want to be able to continue to listen to whatever it is that I want to listen to. So that's why. But for those of you that prefer streaming, it's there as well. There's also links to purchase the album via Amazon. Uh, if you already have the album and want to purchase something else on Amazon, use that same link and buy something and it's credited back to us. Uh, or credited back to me, I should say. <laughs> I've mentioned this on a bunch of different shows recently, you know, I started Ear Peeler up to try to generate some money, um, you know, uh, trying to trying to get by, scraping by every single month. I mean, I'm not looking for a, a pity party or anything because I know there are people that are in much worse situations than I am. 
But before you, you know, click on that link on that, um, you know, that that big time show host who, whether you buy something off of their site or not, really doesn't affect their life, or that former pro wrestler, pro athlete, or whoever it is. Yeah, that's, you know, I have no problem with you guys listening to their shows. Honestly, I have no problem with anyone going and buying you know, via someone else's Amazon links. I'm just trying to uh, pander to you guys as as anyone else would. And, you know, I'm trying to make ends meet and trying to, you know, make, um, not trying to make a living, but just trying to bring in some extra money so that, you know, the, the scraping by on a monthly basis isn't, isn't really, really scraping by. So I'll leave it at that. But uh, anyway, I want to thank you guys for listening to Mars Attacks podcast. We redid the website, um, sort of coordinated everything with the sixth anniversary here. And let us know what you think. You can drop us a line, input at MarsAttacksRadio.com, or you can go to Facebook and you can leave us your comments there, Facebook.com forward slash MarsAttacksRadio. Like us while you're there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Mars Aries 2005. Uh, we have a G Plus. We have Tumblr. And we may expand to Instagram and other things. I'm trying to work all of that out because I know some of you prefer some of these other social networks. In any event, follow however you like to follow the show. Uh, leave us your comments on iTunes and so on and so forth. It only helps when I try getting interviews, when I try getting sponsors and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, it's I I rely heavily on you guys, <laughs> basically. And you know, there are others out there that would prefer to pay for followers and whatnot. Unfortunately, I can't do that. But yeah, take it for what it is. But there's a lot of that out there. Anyway. Getting back to the Overkill episode and getting back to the classic album series. Uh, if you want to check out any previous album featured in this series, just go to MarsAttacksRadio.com. We have two ways that you can check the entire series out. Either on the right-hand side, you'll see Classic Albums column, or right there when you're scrolling down from the top of the page, you'll see a section right in the middle under the banner. Uh, that says classic albums and you can click on the last uh, 20 I believe that uh, that have been up so there's a lot more than that and um, just check them out and if you're unfamiliar with who's involved or you want to find out who may be appearing in upcoming episodes you can go to the index which is at the top of the show notes of every one of these episodes so there you go In any event, get ready for Overkill's Taking Over. We have 12 guests during this episode. This is an underground episode, as I like to say, because the masses don't get it. Overkill has a rabid fan following. They are one of the most important thrash bands of all time. And whether you want to classify them big four or not, uh, definitely they could be big five, big six, big whatever. It's all labeling and all types of bullshit. But um, like I mentioned before, you'll have you'll hear from Blitz, from Bobby Gustafson, from Carl Kennedy of The Rods, who produced their first album, from Josh Christian and Bill Bodily of Toxic, Alan Tecchio of Hades, Nonfiction, Autumn Hour, Watchtower. Um, so on and so forth. He's been part of so many great projects. Gene Hoagland, another one who's been part of a boatload of projects. Uh, Jason McMasters. You'll hear from the Philly band, Corners of Sanctuary. You'll hear from Stu Marshall from Australia, part of Death Dealer and the new band Blasted the Static with Racer X's Jeff Martin. Uh, you'll hear from Tom Potter of the band Gun Driver. You'll hear from Count William from Witchcross and Ravensthorn. And kicking things off is our good, good friend, Dave Reffitt, who has helped set up 
a ton of these interviews that you hear during the Classic Album Series. So here we go. Thanks for listening. And from here on out, you will hear nothing but the guests. Here's a word from our sponsor. And you'll hear all of the comments regarding taking over. Thank you. Earpillar, the podcasting and interview news site. To keep up with your favorite bands or artists and the podcasts or interviews where they appear, go to earpillar.com to find out what we're all about. The man that continues to shred the envelope, Dave Raffet. Overkill taking over. It's a great, great record. My my introduction to Overkill was um, I was at a pawn shop, actually, and I used to go in to stare at the guitars, you know, and um, I was digging through the CDs, and I found Overkill's, um, I hope I get the name of the album right, it's the um, Years of Decay, I think is the name of the record. And okay. um, I opened, I was looking at the liner notes, and there was a ticket stub from 1986, and it was Overkill and Slayer and a bunch of bands, I was like, oh, cool, man. So, you know, of course I had to buy it. And um, <laughs> it was a used CD. And then later when I met Kerry King, years later, I got him to sign that ticket stub for me, which was pretty cool. Um, but I love that record a lot. You know, that's got Elimination and a lot of great tracks on it. Taking Over, I discovered later. And, um, yeah, it's a great record, man. Wrecking Crew kicks ass. And um, Deny the Cross, a lot of great tunes on there. And... Uh, I got to see them recently up in New Hampshire, and, and they're killing, man. They're just a fantastic live band. And I was hanging out with the, the guitar player there, Dave, at the NAMM show, and he's a really cool guy, too. And he actually remembered that gig, and he was like, oh, man, we had all kinds of sound problems and shit that night. And I was like, no way, dude. <laughs> you guys were badass, you know? So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll always love Overkill, and it's it's unfortunate they don't get more credit, man, because they, they really are really great. From Witchcross and Ravensthorne, Count William. Oh, man, Overkill, uh, I have to say before I go into this, is uh, that I have to uh, say that I had the pleasure of meeting Bobby Blitz Ellsworth uh, back in about 2008. Uh, my band Ravensthorn, which everybody, you know, a lot of people know I'm with Witchcross and Ravensthorn, but we were doing a Ravensthorn show and we had the pleasure of opening up for Overkill uh, in the Chicago area. And I got a chance to meet him a couple times during the night. And Man, I got to say that guy's a crazy dude, even in, I mean, in a good way, crazy, but I mean, he's a hyper guy, even in his older age, I'm talking this dude running around the, the concert hall, um, jogging around the whole building with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and a beer in his hand doing push-ups and he's a thin little guy you know but he's tall and you know but man he, he hit the stage he can still power eyes on the vocals but overkill killer band i would definitely say that you know a lot of people um are you know picking a lot of their newer albums as probably as as favorites to in in a list you know they've haven't strayed from getting better all the time but taking over was you know, at a classic point in the band's history. And um, I got the chance to see them a couple times back then too. And, and I'd have to say that I was completely blown away how good they were at the fact that they were a thrash band in a, in a, in a sea of thrash bands. But the thing that made them stand out throughout that whole record, uh, especially and throughout the rest of their career was, was Bobby Blitz's voice. Um, he has, he had a standout uh, type of lead vocal that, you know, a lot of the other thrash bands were, you know, you know, really gravelly sounding or else, uh, you know, had that real kind of headfieldish thing going on or else they were completely deaf, like, you know, like a Slayer type of voice. But, uh, but yeah, Bobby Blitz had a real uh, strong and, and piercing uh, voice that cut through the mix. And, and that album, it was just completely freaking heavy duty and, and it had that powerful uh, Bay Area type of crunch to it, even though, you know, that wasn't, you know, really something to categorize them. But, I mean, I just think that that was a great album, you know, and that was, you know, his voice made them stand out as it does today. But I think that was definitely, if you had to ask me, which was one of my favorites, that was probably uh, one of the ones I would pick because that was definitely and some of the most memorable songs ever from Overkill on it, I'd have to say. Tom Potter of Gun Driver. Well, you know, the the whole, you know, whole Beavis and Butthead world from the gutter thing kind of introduced them to the world, even though they're very well known within 
within metal. And I kind of, you know, I think those guys had a good attitude about how they approached their careers and, and that they, you know, just, you know, kept hammering away at it, you know, and, you know, it's stuff like when you're outside of music professionally, it doesn't really carry that much weight, but, but when you get into it professionally, it, it actually does. And it's good to hear, you know, got, you know, seasoned guys like that who, you know, take the approach that they have and like understand that, you know, the music business is a, a business business and that uh, if you want to survive, man, you got to, you got to keep your fans happy, you know? Yeah. You know, freaking good guys, killer guys, killer band, and for, you know, some, some awesome stuff out of those dudes, you know? From Australia, Death Dealers and Blasted to Statics, Stu Marshall. Uh, another great album. Um, American Thrash is, is huge for me. That's a great album. I think that was before Hello from the Gutter, and it was after Fuel the Fire. Um, I'm a huge Bobby Blitz fan, love his voice, and Fuel the Fire is a very nasty thrash album. I think it, it sometimes, again, can probably get a little overlooked when you're talking about your Megadeths and your Metallicas, but the album cover of that is actually really cool too. I got the, got the shirt, um, you know, the, uh, the four guys holding shotguns. <laughs> it's pretty badass. So, uh, but yeah, great songs. I think the song Wrecking Crew might be off that album. Um, I, I'm, I don't have it handy, but that is just a thrash anthem. So yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that, that album. It's, it's killer. Mick, Sean, and James from Corners of Sanctuary. Hey, I don't know. I, I, well, you, we saw all over. Oh, well, yeah. We see, I mean, we seen them, them at, the, just like, at the Empire. Empire yeah, like yeah. 88 or 89. Yeah. They, were playing, they, they played at a, uh, a local club uh, back in Philly, back 88 or 89. And it's like up close and personal. And it was just, yeah, it just blew your doors down. I mean, I just, it was, and who opened for them? Death Angel or um, Dark Angel? Uh, MLI Rage. Yeah, but there was another, there was a, Death Angel. Oh, wait, it was uh, Metal Church was with him that night, right? Am I thinking of... No, I don't remember. No, that time. <laughs> no, I can't remember. Yeah, you get no, your head too many times. Well, so. Taking Over, um, and I read a couple of... When I when it came out, I remember reading reviews about it and how it was a boring album and this and that. And I was I, I couldn't believe someone would say that's a boring album. I mean, that, that's kind of when they started getting a little more mature. Um, even though they only had like a you know an album and an EP before it, but you could you could see the maturity already starting to take over, uh, you know, starting to come in with with their songwriting, you know, and it, and it kind of went right through you know under the influence and all years of decay, which is still one of my favorite albums. Um, but I, I think taking over had a solid like it was it was raw and it had a lot of it had some hardcore core influence in it too. Um, that you know you can hear. Uh, amazing live band. Uh, they're they're probably one of the best live bands I've ever seen. Uh, you know, well, tight and solid. And I mean, they just that one band. Never, I've never away. seen a bad show. I've never seen them do a bad show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, we've heard some crazy stuff about how they look. Yeah, we. <clears throat> yeah, well, anyway, we just, we, 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 just, we, were, we, uh, we just got, we were on the road a couple weeks ago, and we actually what we you know we rolled into town. We're not going to name. It I was insulted for them, but uh, <laughs> one of the acts had had come up and uh, and told us you know he was schooling us on many things like he was about six like, years old. Even though like, we're twenty like, years older, <laughs> like, like twenty five years older like, than this guy. Be my son. Um, you know, I mean, uh, like he was schooling us on the on the on the record industry and how record companies work and how the music is. And then went on to tell us how uh, how they blew um, overkill off the stage just a few weeks before, and we're all just sitting there, kind of like 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 we just got kicked in the balls. It was the craziest thing we ever heard, and I, I, I don't even think we said anything. We just all turned and walked. I, my away. jaw hit the ground because I'm like, how? there's no way. There's very few bands, if not anybody, that can blow that band off of any stage. They are, you know what I mean? Live notion. You you can't you can't go they're, that long and not have your craft super home. tight. I mean, yeah. I mean it's that's I mean it's impossible. You just, yeah. it's it just doesn't happen that way. He was part of Watchtower, Dangerous Toys, Broken Teeth, and a plethora of other projects. Jason McMaster. Yeah, I uh, once again that's a, a band that's going on you know thirty five forty years of of. 30, you know, over 30 years, I guess now of having consistently released a record and toured the shit out of it. Um, and they were the first band that I realized someone had either shown me their tour 
schedule, their itinerary, something. And it was like, holy shit, do you see this? There's no days off. They're doing like 35 shows in a row. Right. They're just plowing through the calendar like bullets. Uh, and it was the, it was like, how, do you, how, how does one sing like that every night? How do you do that? And, you know, then I realized that, well, my time will come where my agent will probably have that same calendar for me, probably in the same venues, you know, who knows? Um, and, uh, you know, because it's, you know, the routing is routing, you know? Um, but once again, I, uh, I, I, as far as a heavy metal fan goes, that's a record that I do own, but I, I can't think of songs off of it right now. I refuse to pass on the record because our, <clears throat> the love I have for overkill is strong and I just can't name you the songs. I'm, I guess I'm still stuck on feel the fire. And, and at the same time, the idea that these guys have lasted so long and become, you know, have overcome obstacles of, you know, some members coming and going, um, you know, they still have two original members and that's incredible enough. You know, the main songwriting core is there and I know their new material stands up and may, it may even be better than uh, a lot of the older material so the man that has played with all your favorite bands gene hoagland now that was their first album on atlantic correct that was i think that came out in 87 86 yeah i think it came out in 87 early 87 i believe and uh I was real familiar with Field of Fire and the the four track what is it uh, um, Fatal If Swallowed EP I believe that was that came out on like Ironworks Records Azra um, yeah those uh, yeah I was a big Overkill fan you know I had the Power in Black demo um, you know before they were putting out records and stuff and I they were one of my favorite bands totally man it was just full on metal 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 uh, punk rock sounding metal and um, you know, taking over had its moments. Um, is that is that one like "Hello from the Gutter"? No, that's the that next. That that's yeah, right after that. That's under the influence. Taking over has uh, "Deny the Cross," "Wrecking Crew," "Fear His Name," uh, "Use Your Head," "Fatal If Swallowed," "Power Surge," uh, "In Union We Stand," "Electro Violence," and "Overkill 2. Okay, I yeah I do I do remember that basic yeah and that was all with them with the shotguns on the cover everybody had a gun on the yes. cover holding it count okay yeah um, it was I like I like the song Fatal of Swallow I remember that was off a off an EP they had done uh, a couple of years earlier um, like with Rotten to the Core on it and Overkill and stuff like that but uh, um, yeah that one was was. Okay, I power surge. Not a big fan of that song. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I thought their stronger releases were to come. Um, you know, like like I, I thought uh, Years of Decay was a, a stronger, more metal record. Carrie Date produced that one, and I remember right. that was the reason why. Dark Angel chose Terry Date because we heard the Years of Decay record. We were on tour with them at that time, and and we thought that had a really good sound. So we're like, hey, man, we want to get a good production on our next record. Let's call up Terry Date. And you'll see <laughs> in the meantime, he had just done Cowboys from Hell. So uh, so he, was, <laughs> he, he, he wasn't the hot guy at the time, but he was definitely getting out there a lot. So, uh, you know, his bigger productions were to come, like with Deftones and Limp Bizkit and all that sort of stuff. But... Uh, um, right. You know, I think Overkill is, you know, uh, you know, if there was a big five, you know, mm -hmm. I guess I recently saw on that metal show where they're saying, um, you know, who would have been in the in the big five? You know, Exodus, Testament, Overkill, and for a while there, Overkill. You know, they were getting all the opening spots for. You know, they they were Slayer's opening band for for very long and for you know a lot of those touring cycles and. 
I was surprised they, they didn't get a little bit bigger, but they got as big as they could. But I think Overkill mm-hmm. is, is still putting out great records. You know, their last album yeah. um, is Iron Ironbound. Yeah, Ironbound came out last year. That's a pretty ripping record. Hell, it sounds more like Exodus yeah. than Overkill. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty roaring record. So it's nice to see them still being vital and... and you know, those guys have always been some really cool guys, and, and, you know, more power to them, you know, absolutely. You know, still writing yep. vital music, you know, as, um, you know, this this long into your career, and you're you're still putting out cool records. I mean, that, that's, that, that's pretty cool, man. A lot of bands can't say that. That's why they break up after four records, you know. Yep. Don't break absolutely up. You can agree. just change members. <laughs> and, that, and that's what they did, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, interestingly enough, uh, when I interviewed Blitz and when I interviewed Chuck Billy, I asked them both about the term the Big Four. And Blitz had no issue whatsoever with the term. He said he sure. understood that it um, you know, had to do with album sales and that he got along with those four bands really well and that you know he really didn't care. And Chuck Billy had the completely opposite reaction. He said that... The term was stupid, and that if uh, if those bands were the big four, then what was Testament? Were they five? Were they six? You know, who were they? And he said, you know, when a booking agency is trying to um, get band shows at festivals and stuff, what do they say? Well, we can't get you the big four, but we can get you seven, nine, and eleven. Oh, that's so that's <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it was interesting. What, whatever Chuck Billy says, I follow just because of who wants to get punched out by Chuck Billy. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, good point. I mean, I mean, hell, uh, you know, Testament was selling. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were selling more records than say Slayer. You know, because I think of the big four, Slayer probably had the least amount of album sales. Yet, yeah. You know, they could headline the big venue, whereas at the time, Megadeth could headline the, the, the smaller venue, and Anthrax could headline the smaller venue. You know, there was just, mm-hmm. you know, who does fit, you know, in, in in that, you know? Like, yeah, good good point, you know? I mean, a Testament could have very well been outselling Slayer, but I think at the time, you know, the the proof is in the entire package. Who's going to bring the, the crowd to the shows? And boy, Slayer, yeah. you know, I don't think Slayer didn't have a sold-out show from the years, you know, 1988 through, you know, 94 or something like that, you know? Right. Yeah, very very true. Um, and I actually think, um, regarding what you're saying with their sales and everything, I when people start to talk about these newer thrash bands, the so-called retro thrash movement or whatnot... Sure. I mean, I think Chuck Billy has a bigger influence on how these um, n- how this new generation is singing more than anyone else out of all those legendary thrash bands. I can see that. I can see where Testament's influence on the you know the Lamb of Gods and the Triviums and the uh, yeah. Boy, there's another big band that's just as big, uh, like Shadows Fall and stuff. Those right. Those bands harken back to Testament before they do, you know, like Hell Awaits or something like that, you know, so. Right. So I hear, I hear Testament's influence on the, the, the new crop more so than I do any of the other big four, I guess. But, yep. you know, you know, Testament, they, they, they had a real influence from, from Metallica. I thought that was really palpable in their music, you know. Metallica has a ballad. Testament has a song called The Ballad. You know, we're not going to fart around yeah. this time. We're just going to call it The Ballad. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, Testament was, was an amalgamation of all things Bay Area thrash. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did it really well, and they were, they were good at it. But, uh, you know, I would have to say, I mean, not that we're having a talk about the big five, but, you know, I mean, Exodus, they <laughs> were there at the start. They are the big four. They're the big 4.1, you know? Like, right. they're in there, too. They helped create this sound, but they just couldn't hold it together long enough to have a lot of really great album sales, I guess. But, mm-hmm. you know, Testament 
did, you know, four four good looking five good looking dudes playing some pretty, you know, some pretty, you know, pretty thrash metal. Um, you know, they 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 were, you know, they were the five of the big of the big five, but you know, there isn't a big five, there's a big four. So right. um which I'm sure the big four thought it was a pretty corny uh, lumping in of all four bands. I'm sure they probably thought, man, you know, hey, we're Slayer, Metallica's Metallica, you know, those guys are Megadeth, you know, Anthrax is their thing, Big Four, what? You know, but now 25 years later, hey, Big Four tour is going to make all a million dollars. So, yeah, we're the Big Four, yeah. totally. From Hades and nonfiction, lead singer Alan Tecchio. Uh, I think Horoscope is more of a favorite for me, but Taking Over is a great record, not such a great sound, but it has some of the best overkill riffs ever on there. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, songs off the top of my head. What was the big giant hit with the bass riff? Power Surge, Power Surge, Power Surge. So Power Surge, um, Denied Across opens that, which is awesome. Uh, you know, it's, it was the last record I think with Rat Skates on drums. And I really liked Rat's energy. I thought that he just had a spastic kind of explosion type of playing that uh, was very unlike Sid and very unlike everybody except Ronnie, who's in the band now. Ronnie reminds me of that kind of frenetic energy uh, type of a player. And I think they definitely lost something after Rat left because of that uh, energy that he brought to the party. Not that they weren't obviously successful after that, because they did really well, and they're still doing well. But um, I thought that was a big part of that sound. And uh, that record for me is, is really special because we were starting to do our own music at that point, and they were being played in all of the clubs every time we played out of the 80s. You know, the Overkill be blasting on the PA. And we opened up for Overkill a number of times, too, back in the day, and uh, eventually toured with them in nonfiction. So I got a lot of love for those guys. Maybe they're just a great band. It's so cool that you know, DD and Blitz especially are still sticking it out, you know. Right. And why is uh, Horoscope so special to you? I don't know. There was just something about the maturity of the riffs. Uh, and the overall production was a lot more solid and meaty. Uh, taking over is kind of a thin production to it. Uh, they've got some, some definite, like, low end coming in there. And Rob Canavino, I know he definitely had a lot to do with helping to mold the songs. If he didn't write all the riffs, um, he definitely had an influence on them. And there's one song in particular on that record, Nice Day for a Funeral, where I was asking him when we were on tour with them, you know, who wrote it, whatever, and he said, well, he wrote the riff, but the riff is, uh, you know, was changed by Rob because it's just too Iron maiden sounding. So if you know that song at all, the riff is, um, it's, it's like, da na na and don't honor up to translate well. <laughs> it's, uh, just for the sake of talking with you, the riff now on the record is and I asked him, well, what did you do to that riff? And he put the ticket of tickets in there, and the riff used to go the very Iron Maiden kind of pattern, and and Rob just made it so much more modern sounding and heavy, and I like that influence that he had on the band. So I think that's probably a big part of why I like that record. Josh and Bill of Toxic Killer Band went to see them a bunch of times. Back in the day, uh, and taking over, I think, uh, kind of, um, it, it kind of gave them like a, a, a base to work with. They, they, uh, I can hear like elements of this album used throughout, uh, the Overkill career. Um, and, uh, it's just, uh, another just ripper of an album. That was. Like I was talking earlier, we were talking about uh, Blizzard of Oz being a, a, a breakout record for a genre. This was right when thrash was sort of coming into the mainstream. And this Overkill, it was weird the way it worked out for Overkill. Uh, Anthrax and Megadeth and Metallica and other bands seemed to jump ahead when I always felt Overkill, especially on this record, should have been the breakout. Like songs like Wrecking Crew, um, you know, Fatal Swallowed, 
just so many the night across there's so many great songs on that album i you know that for a summer that was my favorite album for the entire summer that it came out uh, and bobby bliss just had the greatest greatest voice ever um oh yeah and, and saw him lots of times live at lamore's back in the day when lamore's in brooklyn was open they absolutely ruled it again local band awesome awesome album definitely a, a landmark record yeah, that, that those guys had incredible showmanship, and, and uh, I love D.B. Bernie's bass tone. I, I, yeah. I remember, like, actually, like, seeking out, you know, what gear he used and everything, just so I could try to imitate that tone. It was such a punchy piano type of uh, uh, bass tone that just was, was absolutely fantastic to my ears, so. He produced Overkill's Field of Fire, The Rods, Carl Kennedy. Like we mentioned before, you had worked with Overkill on their first LP. And actually, the album that we're going to be discussing is their second LP, Taking Over. What was it like to work with them in the studio? Because that was their really their first sort of professional um, time in a studio. Everything else before this was pretty much just them doing demo works and releasing the, the EP that they that's still floating around. Right. Um, you know, they were young in terms of the studio, but those guys knew what they wanted. They were, you know, they were well on their way. And, uh, you know, Bobby was a star. No doubt that Blitz was a star. D is a great guy. Gustafson was a monster. You know, Rat is a great, he still is a great guy, nicest guy. Um, you know, they were just really good guys, and it was the first experience. And so, I mean, in, in hindsight, I always wish we'd had more, had had more, uh, pre-production time, but those guys kick the ass, you know, so. Do you wish that you could have worked with them on subsequent releases, or did you get a feel that that was the only release that you were going to be working with them? Um, I mean, it's not that I didn't enjoy working with the guys, you know. It was uh, it was a bit of a hectic time for me, you know, so it was, it was, a, it was like a blur almost in some ways, because we you know, working in the studio, but you know, I never look at any band as, you know, I should be working on the next project. And I worked on three Anthrax albums, but it was clearly it was time for them to move on. Sometimes bands work with producers like the Beatles work with George Martin forever, and it works for them. But a lot of times you just need the fresh blood. Everybody needs to move on, and you know, as they develop. So, you know, I never think of it that way. I never, never think that I'm I'm going to be on in on the next project at all. Part of Overkill's original recording lineup, Bobby Gustafson. Excellent. So, going all the way back to the inception, um, how did you come across Overkill? Obviously, there there were a few people in the band uh, that played guitar before you had joined. Um, how did you come to know them? Um, I mean, I think the first time, I, I never saw them play, but I remember seeing... Um, I mean, you're from Jersey. You remember the Aquarian yeah. or the East Coast Rocker back in the day? Yeah. Absolutely. We yeah. had all the uh, we had all the clubs. They would always advertise, and I guess they always had this little credit card size uh, ad that they ran like like every month or whatever. And that's right. the first time I ever saw them. But um, I had a friend, John, who. He had a band too on Staten Island, and he wanted a drummer. And I and he heard about Rat, and he actually knew he knew they were looking for a guitar player. So he actually went there to try and audition for them, but with the hopes of trying to get Rat to come to his band. And uh, you know they weren't you know they weren't buying that at all. And uh, I just happened to mention to him that I, I you know I'm just looking for a band. I want to play and and this that, and the other. And he had mentioned, oh, I think Overkill's looking for. A guitar player, you know, goes, I'll set it up. And I was like, oh, cool. So I wound up getting a audition. I was supposed to play at Dee Dee's house down his basement. And I couldn't right. find it. I mean, I mean, I was real young. I had just gotten my driver's license. And I don't think I've ever even been that far into Jersey where they live. I couldn't find his house for nothing. I don't know if the direction sucked or whatever. But I was really late. We did two songs. And they're like, well, you know, let's try another audition and the other guitar player lived a little bit closer to me on Staten Island, kind of right over the bridge. And uh, then we went there and we, you know, we played a bunch more songs 
And uh, they're like, okay, cool. You know, you want to play? And I was like, yeah. And that was that. We had uh, the guitar player that was at, there at that point for like two weeks. And then all of a sudden, he just up and quit. I brought in a friend of mine that I was jamming with, and then he up and quit. And then I just said, hey, you know, why don't I just do this by myself? And uh, that's the way we kept it. And we went from there. And that was back in... 82 that was the end of 82 was there ever a point in time where the the second guitarist issue was ever brought up again or not not at all not until i actually left the band that was something that came out of left field that they threw at me one day that they wanted uh to try and get a second guitar player and i said no fucking way i mean I just did four albums, just wrote the best album this band's ever had, The Years of Decay, and now you're talking about putting another guitar player in here? I said, how's that going to make me look like I'm, you know, like I can't handle what I'm doing or something? So that was a little bit of an argument, but I think it was because, like, Dee had nobody to write with because I was basically writing all the songs, and I think he wanted to try and write with somebody else to try and get some of his songs or something on there. I don't know what mm-hmm. the basis of it was, but it, it was just a, a complete about face from from him. I don't know if it was Blitz. Blitz may have been involved with it, but I'm not really sure. But that came out of nowhere. But other than up until the time where I left, there was no question as to me being the you know single guitar player. I mean, that's what set us apart in the early days when everyone else had two. Back in the day, a lot of bands due to the fact that they gain notoriety, they played longer shows than a lot of the bands that are around today. So bands would tend to accumulate material that you would see released over one or two or even three different albums. Was there material from that ended up on Taking Over? Was it written for Taking Over? Or was there anything left over from the previous album or even before the, the first albums and EPs were put together? We had the EP, which was first, but, I mean, that just sounded so bad that, you know, we really wanted to redo those songs. So every song came off of that first EP, I think, except for the song, The Answer, we didn't redo because it was just, it just wasn't up to par with some of the rest of them. And then we did the demo um, before that, and I think the two we left off were Death Rider because that wound up being on that metal massacre compilation and we didn't want to do it again and there was a song called the beast within that we didn't redo but i kept writing throughout that whole process and we basically almost had both albums done but what we did was kind of keep stuff in like chronological order like even though some of the stuff for taking over was already done already we kind of stayed with the songs that we wrote initially for feel the fire i mean but songs like fatal if swallowed could have wound up on the first album you know and we could have knocked something else off but we just you know we didn't do that but uh you know then the, the whole third album i think was was pretty much completely new i mean there may have been some riffs here and there that i that i put on tape from the tour but we really didn't have uh, have that one completely done. And then that's when we got Sid. So that one, you could tell, is just, you know, slightly different from the other two. But getting better as, you know, we got better as musicians. And at what point in time did you realize how important these songs would be, not only to your career, but to the band? Um, I don't know if we put that much really stress as far as importance we were just trying to write the best material that we could at the time and you know squeezing stuff in between you know touring and recording and writing i mean it was like a very short amount of time i mean we had an album out like almost every year so there's you know there's a lot of work that went on within that short amount of time so i mean we just tried to make the songs as as best as we could and and fill up you know fill up the album with with killer songs and 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 not any songs that are just filler you know like three good songs and then the rest is crap we really weren't into that so we made sure that stuff was as good as we could possibly make it i mean 
If people thought any more than that of them, I was like, oh, you know, that's just great. We did we did the right thing. Does it surprise you that some of these songs are still staples in the Overkill live show? Um, yeah, I mean, because the first four albums were such a short amount of time in in the band's career, and there's been 25 years that I've been out of the band, and 75% of their set list to this day consists of the first four albums. So the songs that I, were write, I was writing wound up being the most memorable and the most, I guess, hit-oriented type songs, if that's the right word. Because, I mean, you, you did some albums, I think, in the 90s that those guys don't even play any songs off of. Right. I mean, that's just, that just amazes me how you can go through an entire album and, and not even pick one song off of that to put in your set, and you're still playing my old stuff. You know, I guess from what everybody told me, the, the writing completely changed after I left, and I never really listened to any of the stuff really after me. So, uh, I mean, it, it, some stuff, I guess, is, is pretty bad if they can't take one song off the album to, to throw in their set, you know? As far as the recording of the album is concerned, is there anything that sticks out in your mind that you remember during this recording period? We had uh, Carl Kennedy who did the first album, and, and, and basically we just used Alex Perialis' studio, and it just did not come out at all the way we wanted it to. So Alex kind of uh, said, you know, why don't you guys let me record it? And... uh we were like, sure, you know, it's his studio. He should know what, you know, it was going to sound the best. And he did the SOD thing himself, and that sounded killer and stuff. So we're like, yeah, let's, you know, let's just use Alex this time around. And he had an idea of, I guess he read somewhere in a trade paper or whatever he did, of taking the guitar tracks, the rhythm tracks, because the first one was so lame. It was just horrible. It wasn't my sound uh, that he wanted to take the, uh, tracks and just delay it by like a millisecond so you really couldn't hear it but it was slightly behind the other track to make right. it sound fatter because we were trying to make it fatter and we kind of overdid it we really wanted to make it so much fatter than the first album that i think we made it a little bit too muddy mm -hmm. but um that was like the biggest thing for us i think on that album is just like the difference in the sound we had the songs really done. We just kind of went up there, went in and did them where as opposed to the first album, we went up like a week before and sweated it out in, in, in some attic above a music center in the middle of August in upstate New York for a week. And it was just horrible. This one, we just kind of went up, went in, knocked it out. And uh, it to me, it was, you know, it was much better than the first album, but it wasn't really like the perfect sound yet. We were just getting closer. Like each album wound up being a little step closer. That's an interesting point because I interviewed Chuck Billy a while back and he mentions how the Alex Perialis sound, he, he felt that uh, if, if it was compared against other albums by bands from the same era, that the album that the albums that he's done haven't aged as well. I read a similar comment from Blitz not that long ago too. So it's interesting that you mentioned how the sound was, was getting better, but it wasn't exactly 100% what you guys wanted either. No. And then, you know, he still had the old, you know, analog board. It was a 24 track board and we were still going through the whole, you know, trying to mix with, like all of us with our fingers on the faders because it wasn't an automated board yet. Like you couldn't change a little something and then just run another pass through with that new change. If you wanted to do something a little louder or a little quieter, you had to run the whole song again. And we were just kind of oblivious to the fact that, Hey, there's this new board that's digital and you want to make something a little louder. You just program it in and it does it for you. Mm -hmm. And you don't, ruin the whole rest of the mix because you might do something a little weird here and there. So, you know, he tried to get us to stay up at his studio, but 
we knew it was time to move on. So, yeah, it just it wasn't up to par with all the other studios that we were hearing stuff about. So, you know, with the next album, we recorded up there, but we actually went to Los Angeles to one of those really big million-dollar boards back then and, and mixed it. But, you know, he did what, what he could, and we did what we could at the time. I mean, I think it, it definitely could have been better on on both the first and second album. But, it you know, it is what it is. People really didn't understand what, what metal was like. I had the hardest time trying to get low end on a on a guitar because they, they just couldn't imagine there being that much beef on a guitar because guitar wasn't like that before. Right. So they they really didn't know how to record it and how to mix it and, and you know, until, you know, the fourth album. But, you know, we got a little closer on taking over and some people like like that more than, than anything else. So it's just a personal preference, I guess. What are some of your fondest memories of being in the band? Um, like going to your, I mean, a first tour with Slayer and then, playing with Slayer and Motorhead, which was a great tour. Um, you know, first time going to Europe, we actually did that Metal Hammer Road show with, with Anthrax and Asian Steel first, but going to Europe with Slayer and really, you know, going all over, going on the uh, the other side of the wall before the Berlin Wall was down. We were like the first American metal band to play in Poland. Huh. Um, which was amazing. I you know, I thought somebody had gotten in there before us, but no one did. And, and we did that with Halloween and, uh, you know, just seeing, seeing, seeing the albums on billboard when our albums showed up, you know, in the billboard charts, you know, that's something you, you know, you don't think you'd ever see as a kid or, or a, a metal band, which was amazing. And then, um, just recently I, I got in, contact on Facebook with a girl. It was our last show I think I did with them. We did a big outdoor show um, for a girl who needed a liver transplant and donated all the money from the show to her. And I had lost contact with her since 1990. And I just found her on Facebook or she found me and, and she's doing well. And, wow, you know, awesome. amazing. she's in her late twenties now. And it's like, you know, that was like my last cool final memory with those guys. So, you know, little little baby steps along the way, just little things that, you know, that made you happy, you know, getting a bigger tour or, you know, seeing stuff on Billboard and and, and just selling more albums with, with each album. So we were, you know, we were kind of on the rise. We were getting bigger and bigger, which was great. The move to have, to, to do the lineup switch involving you after the biggest album that the band had up until then, uh, for me as a fan was was really sort of head scratching but for a band to survive that and still persevere all these years do you think it's the strength of that early material that has allowed them to keep going do you think the fans are just that rabid for them is there one thing that you could point out as to what differentiates overkill and their fans from other bands that you've come in contact with um, I think it's a combination of that because if the first four album material wasn't strong, they wouldn't keep playing it. So obviously at the live shows, if that's such a big part of their live performance, then then obviously that's what's keeping them going. I mean, I do give them props for still being around. They are probably, even though I have not seen them play, one of the best live bands around because we really concentrated on that in the early days. I mean, I have videotapes of show after show after show where we would sit there and critique what we were doing and critique the lights and how this should end and stop and start. I mean, we really paid attention to what we were doing just to perfect the live show because that's where we knew we were going to sell. We weren't going to sell um, from the radio. So our live show had to be killer. And, 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 you know, they kind of kept that going. Um, but I think it's one of those things just because you're alive, you're really not living. They're, <laughs> right. they're out making music and they're playing, but to say they're making a living off of it, I don't, I don't think so. And if anyone is making money, it's just DD and Blitz. The other guys don't have a part of, uh, you know, any of the uh, business end of it. 
So for them, financially, it's probably better because it's 50-50 because if I was still there, you know, I would still have my lion's share of uh, of the money. But, you know, it, it has been a long time, and I give them props for, for staying around. But like I said, the whole thing is the music. And if you're not putting out good music, then you're just throwing stuff out there to go out on tour. Based on everything that you're telling me, I'm I'm guessing that there really hasn't been any contact with you and DD or Blitz over all these years. No, I I you know I talked to Blitz a couple times up until a few years ago when they started um, re-recording my music and 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 not not paying me at all. I, I mean, you're also supposed to be getting paid for live shows because it's mm-hmm. a performance. And you're performing, and you're you're making money and creating income, and it's become it's coming off of that music. So you're supposed to pay the writers of that music, which I've I've never seen a dime of of any of that. But uh, but on top of that, the live albums that they've done and everything else, I've also not seen any money on. So they're not you know very stand up type of guys. Even though on occasions I talk to Blitz here and there. You know, we tried to maybe do something for Feel the Fire when it was 25 years, but, you know, somebody stomped that out. I'm not sure which one of the two did that, but, you know, I I had a falling out with Blitz after they re-recorded the demo and and put it out for free with some German magazine on a disc that they included to promote their new album. And I'm like, you, you know, you just can't take the music where we were partners in that regardless if we like each other or not we were still partners in that music and that's why we had contracts and that's why we signed things so no one got screwed later on down the line and that's all they've pretty much been doing to me is screwing me i never talked to Didi except for one time maybe four years ago i was trying to get money for all of us and uh i actually broke down and made a phone call to him and and uh it was just kind of business-like, and, and, and that was it. And then they just kind of threw the wrench in that gear as well. So I wound up wasting about $8,000 and got nowhere. And I was really trying to just help everybody out. So they basically are just, you know, they're keeping everything secretive. And, you know, if they're getting money, they're not including me or probably Rat on any of that. So I really have, like, zero respect for them guys because they're just not, they're not stand-up guys at all. He once told us that he was okay with the term Big Four, New Jersey's own Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You ever think, 25 years ago, when you were writing some of these tracks, in Union, uh, We Stand, Power Surge, Wrecking Crew, that you'd still be playing those songs today? No, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I didn't think there'd even be a band. I, I was... Uh... <laughs> You know, I, I, I never have had uh, foresight into things, you know. I, I might still lack that in, in my personality. I'm, I'm still more of a momentary type person, uh, person with regard to uh, making the most of the moment. So I can never have looked, you know, from back then and said, oh, this is going to be relevant this many years later. Because I didn't even know there'd be a band. I mean, I was the guy who said, geez, let's do the best we can on taking over because this is probably the last record. Uh, now, obviously, that's not true, but uh, right. but that philosophy sure worked because when the next one came along, I said the same thing. Um, so, from my, <laughs> so from my perspective, uh, I don't have that kind of oh, is this relevant or or anything? It was to me, it was relevant in 1987, and what we do now in 2012 with those rec- with those songs is really just update them. Um, we take right. them into the you know you saw us during the Iron Bounce where those. Uh, Wrecking Crew or Power Surge or Union We Stand uh, were presented with, uh, let's say, Ironbound, an Ironbound contemporary vibe to them. Because nothing really mm-hmm. changes except that there's a newer record and everything now gets played at the new record standard. Okay. Uh, did it ever sink in at some point, you know, while wow, we have something special that we're putting together here with Taking Over? Oh, it was the best record of the fucking year. It stomped all over that Metallica shit. (laughs) 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 I think we did. I think we knew that it was special. I think we knew we were developing. Um, You know, if uh, Feel the Fire, which preceded it, was uh, 
was just about chaos and not understanding things. We started getting a little bit of an idea with regard to understanding. Uh, I think Alex uh, Perialis actually helped us through that. Uh, he created a, a, one of the first walls of sound I've ever heard with Overkill. And obviously, I thought the songs were special. They were, you know, they were something memorable, and they were, they were, they were new and they were fresh. So it was, uh, you know, it was something for us to sink our teeth into. That was, uh, it was different. It wasn't just what we had been doing uh, prior to being signed. And for the last tour, it was now, wow, we have a new record. So it was, uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun. I remember. Okay, and um, you just mentioned, you know, some of the memories that you had or regarding. Um... Years of Decay, is there anything that stands out to you now from uh, taking over? Oh, stands out. During, during that um, recording sessions? During the recording session or just during that, you know, uh, era of the band? Huh. I do remember doing that album cover and thinking it was the most ridiculous thing in the world uh, with the guns and the fish islands. Right. And somebody had brought up to to make us look a little bit more uh, gritty. Brought up like a, a like a garbage bag full of dirt, <laughs> which, we, which we proceeded to throw at each other like juveniles <laughs> right. <laughs> right, before, right before the picture was taken. So that's where all the uh, the dirty look and the mud comes from is uh, is from that. But that was an indoor shot, um, and that that whole background was like a. Uh, I remember it was like this, uh, it was this like little model. I mean, this is pre-computer generated stuff. So somebody's laying picture over picture kind of a thing. Uh, right. and came up with this little model, took a picture of it. It came out pink. And, and I remember when the record came out and I looked at it and I go, Oh my God, it's fucking pink. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> so that's one of my memories of the, of the era. Okay. You know, interestingly enough, I always, you know, looking at that album cover, Motorhead's Ace of Spades always came to mind. Like, the one side were, were you guys, and the other side were, were those three staring back at one another, so. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, uh, you know, I never thought of that, but that's actually pretty cool. Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 